Regardless of our feelings or the popularity of demonic religions or the success and the state of the current church, ultimately, the task of missions will succeed. And I present that to you this evening as a motivation to be involved in missions. This is the one task that cannot and will not fail. It is not possible that the missionary enterprise would end in defeat, ultimately. Any individual episode may end in defeat. A man may go to an island, as John Chow did, to the North Sentinelese Islands a few years ago, to the south of India. And he may have spears thrown through his body before the boat has even pulled away. Or like John Williams in Aramanga, when John Payton followed him, the stories were still ringing in everyone's ears that John Williams and his teammate were speared down by evil savages, men controlled by demons, before again the boat had even pulled away. Those men's chapters ended in what the world calls failure. But the cause of missions will succeed. That is my burden tonight to explain and press on us the fact that missions can and will and must succeed. I want to remind you, roughly in this study we have been going through, and I've been changing it as we've been going, but roughly this study has been following three categories. We are in the second of those categories. The first category was a definition. We were trying to understand clearly what is missions. So in the first group of lessons, we covered the meaning of missions. And there we covered things like the Great Commission. And there we covered selfish churches, indigenous churches. And we covered least reached people groups and crossing barriers. Further, we studied the nature of a missionary because we looked at the Apostle Paul's life. Now, that was all under this first heading of what does missions, church planting, mean? Then we moved on to systematic theology, and that's where we're at now. We're trying to ask ourselves under this second heading, what is the motivation When I say motivation, I mean take all of the Bible together, study all of its themes, notice that there is a way to look at the doctrine of the church through the lens of missions. There is a way to look at the doctrine of sanctification through the lens of missions. There is a way to look at eschatology, which we will do tonight. Through the lens of missions. There is a way to look at the nature of God through the lens of missions. Ultimately, the doctrine of missions could be a thousand page systematic theology book. 
That is, you could look at the Trinity through missions, the Holy Spirit through missions. You could ask yourself, what does missions have to do with the Holy Spirit? Or what does the Holy Spirit do in the task of missions? And you could look at every doctrine that way. When we come to salvation, when we come to sanctification, when we come to glorification. So when we talk about the motivation for missions, we're looking at different doctrines of the Bible and showing how those doctrines urge us to be missionaries. So we noticed, first of all, the glory of God. After that, we noticed total depravity. The sinfulness of man is a motivation for missions. Why? Because it pulls us with pity. We look at these people who have become savages. And we say we have pity on you. To call someone a savage is not politically correct. But it's biblically accurate. And historically, all cultures called other cultures savages. And barbarians when they were different. The Bible tells us that you are savage when you have devoted yourselves to your sin without any light from the Bible. Proverbs 29, 18. Romans 3, 9 through 18. Titus 1, verse 15. Genesis 6, verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 3. Jeremiah 17. And on and on. So we studied the glory of God. That's the reason. Depravity of man, that's the reason. We studied the exclusivity of Christ. Christ alone. If Christ is the only way, then we ought to be missionaries. Last week, we studied the wrath of God. And tonight, I would like to deal with one more motivation for missions. As I've rearranged the lectures that I've delivered in the past few months, I've pulled some that were in this first category, rearranged them and rewritten them, and pulled them down here into the second category. But here in this last one, that is tonight, I'd like to give you what works out to be the eighth motivation for missions. On our list here, it's number five, but I'm not listing them all because of this chalkboard. But as I write number five up here on the board, it would be hope or promise, or success. So in your notes, let's examine that. Let's go right through the Bible. The Old Testament promises that the world will be full of the true Christian faith. Colin, could you please close that door nicely because of the generator? The world will be full of the gospel. That is what the scripture promises. The Psalms, Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Take your pen if you have it and underline those words in these verses that are the most gripping on these categories. There in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over whom? Over whom does the the Lord reign in verse 28? Over the nations. And I ask you, has this happened yet? 
Are all the ends of the earth remembering and turning to the Lord? Are all the families of the nations worshiping? Look at Psalm 67. God be gracious to us and bless us. We'll read the whole psalm. Cause his face to shine on us. Selah. That your way may be known to the earth. Your salvation among the nations. Among all nations. Pardon me. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Notice that the peoples. Underline the peoples. And back in verse 2. All nations. Let all the peoples praise you. Underline all the peoples. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad. Underline that. That's the title of John Piper's book. Let the nations be glad. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Is verse 4 happening right now? Is Christ judging the peoples with uprightness and guiding the nations on the earth? I ask you, are the Swahili being guided by Christ? In some sense they are, but the great majority of the Swahili-speaking people are not being guided by Christ. The Gujarati in India are the Gujarati people being guided by Christ. Are the Cantonese people in China? Look at verse 5. Let the peoples praise you. Underline that again. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Underline all the peoples praise you. Verse 6. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us for a reason. What's the reason that God blesses us? Underline that phrase, all the ends of the earth. The reason God gives us Toyota Buckies and Ford Buckies and jobs, the reason he puts us in a developed country is not... For us to have a milkshake at McDonald's. God put us in a developed country. So that all the nations of the earth may fear him. Psalm 72, perhaps my favorite psalm. For this hopeful motive. May he also rule from sea to sea. From the river to where? Is that happening right now from sea to sea to the ends of the earth? Is he ruling? Let the nomads of the desert bow before him. Where among the nomadic tribes of North Africa is there a strong Christian presence? It's not there. But it will be. Let his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. That's probably Northeast Africa. In Northeast Africa, we have Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, North Sudan, Libya, Egypt. Are those countries known for bowing down to the Lord? Are the politicians of those countries I just named offering gifts to Jehovah? This is a prophecy of what will happen. Look at verse 10, verse 11. 
and let all kings, no, not just Northeast Africa, not Northwest Africa, not Central Africa, not Africa alone, but up into Europe and reaching its hands out into China, into the Asias, into the islands, across the Atlantic, lay hold of America and South America. And he has promised that he is going to take all of those places and all the politicians will bow down before him. Look at 72, verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Are all nations calling him blessed right now? Is North Korea calling Jesus blessed? Is Cambodia calling Jesus blessed? Is Laos calling Jesus blessed? Is Slovenia calling Jesus blessed? Is Uzbekistan calling Jesus best? Mongolia, is that, is that country calling Jesus blessed? Pakistan and Bangladesh, is Yemen calling Jesus blessed? This is a promise and every nation I just mentioned is explicitly, even by their own admission, less than 50% Christian. And of course, even if they called themselves Christian, that would be no assurance that they are Christian. Keep going in verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may parts of America be filled with his glory. What does it say? The whole earth. Friends, this is just the beginning. There in number five, I've listed the passages, the verses. I read through the entire book of Psalms some time ago. Underlining every phrase that said all nations, all the world, all peoples. If it referred to them being in submission to God, loving Jehovah. I found at least... 27 different psalms mentioning that there will be universal success. What does that mean? But it is a promise that missions cannot and will not fail. These psalms were written a thousand years before Christ. That means they're 3,000 years old. And now we are seeing something of this being answered. Because in the last 200 years... Many hundreds of people groups have found out about the glory of Christianity more so than in the past. If you were putting it in a chart, it might look like this. This is when David wrote in 1000 BC. And here are how many tribes know the Lord. And then for a thousand years, it's about the same. Here is the cross of Jesus, and the tribes are about the same. But out here, about the year 1,700, it started to go up. And as it got closer to the year 2000, it has gone very high. 
That is, the number, number of languages with the Bible or a missionary. What you see on this rudimentary chart that I've just scribbled up here What you can see, as I've roughly drawn the board, is that David's Psalms are slowly being fulfilled. Now, if you look at this chart, what you'll see is a dramatic increase in the last 200 or so years. I'll remind you, the first African language to have its Bible was in 1837, right there. Right about there. Tswana. And then a hundred years later, we have Venda. There are 2,000 languages in Africa, but already hundreds of them have Bibles just in the last 200 years. God is fulfilling the promise. It is happening. The growth is increasing. And these Psalms are a promise that it will happen. So if you are a young man considering whether or not you should give your life to missions, the answer is, it's going to work. I don't know if your business plan will work. I'm not sure about that. But I know this business plan will work. Because by the Holy Spirit, David was inspired. Look at the prophets. Isaiah 11. We've read this verse before in these classes. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will be down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you see that? That verse 9. The earth will be full of the, lo- of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Completely. So much so that it's not possible to drain the sea. That's how the knowledge of the Lord will one day be on this earth. The knowledge of the Lord one day will so fill this earth that it will not be possible to go back to that old state. The knowledge of the Lord will one day fill this earth so much so that you can't even get to the bottom of it. The knowledge of the Lord will cover this earth so that it will be clear that the knowledge of Christ has conquered the earth the same way it is clear that water has conquered the ocean. Look at verse number 10. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. When? When in verse 10? What's the phrase? Well done. In that day. You need to follow that phrase the whole way through the prophets. You'll find it through almost all of the prophets. 
Telling about a future day when these amazing things will happen. Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. That sounds very optimistic. Young men may safely give themselves to this cause knowing I'm serving a kingdom that will never end. Many young people in Africa want government jobs because they know there's job security and there's benefits. Well, I would like them to notice that here's a government job that is the best of its kind. Its benefits are indescribable. Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Has that day arrived yet? No. Is that day upon us yet? No. No, it's not here. The Lord is not yet king over all the earth. There is a sense in which God is sovereign over all the world. There is a sense in which we could say the knowledge of the Lord has gone around the earth. But that sense has not been fulfilled according to the words and the metaphors that I just read to you. All the nations, all the peoples, the whole earth, the whole world... Count those up sometimes, every one of those universal terms, all, entire, whole, complete. And then notice the categories, all the kings. And then notice the metaphors, how will the knowledge of the Lord reach the end of the earth? Some people like to say, well, see, missions has been growing because there was a short-term mission trip to Madagascar and the Americans got off the plane, there was 50 of them, and they went on their trip from station to station through Madagascar, and they had three different people who could translate for them, and they gave out 50,000 pieces of literature. And some of those pieces of literature have eventually made their way to the farthest villages in Madagascar. No, that's not what Isaiah 11 verse 9 is talking about when it says, the earth will be full of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do the waters cover the sea in a superficial, temporary manner? like tracts or pamphlets, may somehow reach a small village? No, the waters cover the sea in complete domination of the ocean floor underneath. If the ocean floor were crying out for escape from the water, the water would not listen to them. These passages cannot be said to have their full conclusion in what we see today. Notice this letter D, all Israel will be converted. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. That's the nation of Israel. When I take away their sins, for God has shut up all of Israel in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. 
That means all of Israel. Final success is the teaching of scripture. Islam will not survive. Buddhism will not survive. Hinduism will not survive. African traditional religion will not survive. Atheism will not survive. Christianity will win. It has been prophesied by David. It has been prophesied by Asaph. It has been prophesied by all the writers of the Old Testament. Christianity will win. And that leads us to number two on page 42. Missions is the name that we give to the efforts of making Christianity universal. What would you call it if you tried to make Christianity spread over all the nations and over all the earth? What would we call that? Missions. The Great Commission. The Great Commission was given with a universal scope. He said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. And when Jesus taught about the end of the world in Matthew 24, he could not finish his discussion without saying there's a connection to missions. Because this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world and then the end shall come. This began in the book of Acts because the book of Acts tells us about great success. You know, famously in Acts 2 verse 41, 3,000 people were converted when Peter preached. But just a few days later, in Acts chapter 4 verse 4, 5,000 people were converted after one sermon. And look in the notes there, I've recorded some of these. Chapter 2 verse 47 Every day people were being converted. Chapter 16, verse 5. 20 years later, Paul in the second missionary journey says people were being converted every day when he went back to visit the churches he had planted. Chapter 5, verse 14, there are crowds. Chapter 14, verse 1, there are crowds of people being converted. In fact, in Romans 1, verse 8, Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, we've got to understand the phrase the whole world there in Romans 8 probably has reference to the Roman Empire. Paul was probably speaking as he wrote to the Romans saying, wow, everyone knows what's happening there. In general statement, meaning It has such unusual and shocking reach that I'm marveling at how your faith has been explained around the world. Colossians 1 verse 6 says something similar using a similar phrase. This has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So in Colossians 1 and Romans 1, Paul thought there was a way in which you can see that the gospel is growing. Now, do you see we have to balance Romans 1 verse 8 and Colossians 1 verse 6 with those Old Testament passages we just read? Does that surprise you to see Romans 1 verse 8 referencing all the world knowing about the faith of the Romans? 
Because in Psalm 72, it says all the nations would understand. So when we were reading through Psalm 72, I kept asking, has this happened? Has this happened? Has this happened? And you responded, no, no, because that's not what you see around you. But Paul thought something like that had happened. It is very important for us to remember that the way the Bible uses words are the right way to use words. Some time ago, I posted a a blog post with 14 different categories where there are extremes on either side. And the Bible uses language from both sides. Let me give you some examples. Romans 4 verse 5. We are saved by faith alone. James 2 verse 24. We are not saved by faith alone. Wait a minute. Which one's right? Do we believe in sola fide? Salvation by faith? James 2.24 says no. In fact, Catholic apologists like to say the only time faith alone is found in the Bible is when there's the word not before it. In James 2.24, it says not by faith alone. In Romans 4 verse 5, it says faith alone, or it teaches the doctrine. So which one is true? And the answer is both of them are true. Are you going to get into the face of the brother of our Lord and say, hey, you didn't use the right word. No, I think what we should rather say is James was exactly right. And so was Paul. Both Paul and James were right. And those are correct ways to use the words. What about this one from 2 Thessalonians 1? Last year we prayed for this. The prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1 that says, you may be counted worthy. Of the calling. Counted worthy? We're not worthy. Well, in a sense we are because Paul says it can happen. Here's another one. Who saves people? Not a difficult question. Go ahead and answer. First Corinthians 10.22. Paul says, I might save some. Is it 1 Corinthians 10.22 or 9.22? Suddenly forgetting. Let me just look that up. Oh, 9.22, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 9.22. I might by all means save some. Who's doing the saving in 1 Corinthians 9.22? Wait a minute, that's heresy. No, we need to use words the way the Bible uses words. Of course, we believe that only God can save. But there is some sense in which Paul can do it. Philippians 2, verse 5. Jesus is equal with the Father. John 5, verse 22. I want all men to honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Are the Father and the Son equal in glory? But the Son obeys the Father. Sons are under fathers. 
Is the Son under the Father or equal with the Father? Both words are correct. We may be uncomfortable with the fact that the Scripture uses words in both ways, but it does. Many, many times. In fact, there's 14 examples of that that I put in an article. If you want, I'll send you the link on my blog. That There are many times that the Bible uses phrases and then later on will use a phrase, the same phrase in the opposite sense. And that's just the key. In the opposite sense. God never uses the same word in the same sense with a negation in front of it. So he would not say we are saved by faith alone and in the same sense we are not saved by faith alone. But he does say we are saved by faith alone and he leaves it to you and me to say, oh, we are saved by faith alone in this sense, the sense whereby faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. But not in the sense, as James uses it, where faith does not supply a written testimony to others of our salvation. In that sense, we are not saved in the eyes of others by faith alone. We're saved by our works in that sense. My point here in bringing this up in this class on missions is, we just saw in the Old Testament that it says, all the, all the nations, all the world. And here we're reading in Romans 1 verse 8 and Colossians 1 verse 6. All the world is talking about your faith. So which is it? Were all of those prophecies of David fulfilled way back at the time of Paul the Apostle? And the answer is no. There was a, a minor introductory beginning sense in which Paul felt the joy of knowing that the Romans' faith was being discussed in many places. But no, the Romans' faith had not yet reached the Tonga people or the Venda people or the Shonas. It had not yet reached Europe. Well, it had not yet reached Northern Europe. I guess Rome is in Europe. So when we mention this, we want to remember that missions is evidently growing over the years. And for this, we are very grateful. And we should be expecting this because the churches were commanded to pray for the entire world. Notice 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity, but this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse 4. Who wants how many men to be saved? All He desires all men to be saved. And there again, by the way, we have another difficulty in our usage of terms. God desires all men to be saved. But God also desires... To save his people from their sins. Which is it? Does God want to save his elect? Or does God want to save all men? And the answer is. There's a way in which both are true. 
and careful study will show us how those are working. But this we know, and the reason I listed this prayer in the notes is the early church had been praying and was expecting and anticipating full answers to their prayers. Look at Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that leads me to the third point this evening. Missions cannot fail. Can't fail. You cannot get involved in a more confident endeavor. Look at the verses there from Revelation. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Verse nine, chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 21 verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That means the kings of the earth will be in heaven. They will bring, verse 26, the glory and the honor of the nations into it. In the new Jerusalem, the kings of the world will bring their honor and glory into the gates of the new Jerusalem. And that is a prophecy that the nations of the world will be converted. So when we are involved in missions, we are serving the most certain end. And this is Christian optimism. This is the kind of optimism we should have. Let me give you a few points about this optimism. Notice up here in the chart. David could have been optimistic. But isn't it clear that David was going to die before his optimism ever saw the great results? He died even before he saw the temple. He almost died before he saw his son made king, Solomon. David died long before he saw the the line begin to go up. What about Paul? Paul died long before he saw any Africans converted. Well, maybe some in North Africa. Those from the Bantu-speaking languages. And out here, people died all along, never seeing the hope completed. Christian optimism does not say... It will happen in my lifetime. Christian optimism does say it will happen. Number two, Christian optimism does not say it will happen by the church. Do you know Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14? Enter at the narrow gate. For broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in there at... Small is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are how many people that find it? Few that find the way to life. Many that find the way to death. That was Jesus Christ's words telling us. Few. On another, a separate occasion. That was Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon that he was preaching everywhere he preached. Later on in Luke chapter 13 verse 24 he says... 
The same concept, but at a different time. Enter, strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For I say to you that many will try to enter, but will not be able. What is that teaching us? It's going to end in failure. Something's going to end in failure. Famously, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, Know this, that in the last days, dangerous times will come. MacArthur says that phrase, times, is epochs. Like waves on the beach. One wave after another, hitting as the tide comes in. So the waves of sin slowly make their way up the beach. Each successive wave coming higher. Those waves are false doctrine, sinfulness, wickedness, compromise, apostasy, paganism, demon worship. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. Know this, in the last days, dangerous times, dangerous epochs will come. Men will be, and then he lists 23 different sins. All of these sins will grow and increase in the last days. In Luke chapter 18, our Lord says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There are a number of passages that teach that the state of the world when Jesus returns will be a hard, foolish, dark state. Luke 17, Luke chapter 12, Matthew 24, Revelation 6 to 18. So that Christian optimism does not say, oh, I will see all of those psalms fulfilled in my life. Or, nor does it say, I will see all of those psalms fulfilled in the church. Christian optimism is not short-lived. And it does not attribute to the church the kind of power that only belongs to Jesus Christ. So that even if we die, even if we see no fruit, the Lord of the harvest will make his promises come true. And this ultimate success cannot come without Jesus Christ. You know the story in Revelation 19 to 20, don't you? Revelation 19, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. Every paragraph begins with those two Greek words, which in English is three. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. Showing us that we have a chronological sequence of events. In Revelation 19, John sees the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Then he says, then I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. And him who sat on him is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew but he himself. And he is clothed with a garment dipped in blood. The blood of his enemies. And his name is called the word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon fine horses. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. This is our Lord Jesus when he returns. Then I saw, John says, the judgment of Armageddon. 
where all the nations of the world, or a great number of them, gather together into Jerusalem to attack Jesus Christ. He will destroy them with the breath of his mouth. Then Revelation 20, then I saw Satan is bound with a chain, thrown into the bottomless pit. Then I saw Revelation chapter 20, for a thousand years, those who had been killed during the great tribulation were raised back. They ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That sounds like what we just read in Psalm 72 and Psalm 67 and Psalm 66. That sounds like Psalm 22 and Psalm 2. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Be wise, therefore, ye kings of the earth. Be instructed, you rulers of the world. Kiss the sun before he is angry, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Christ will return. He will do what we cannot do. He will make this chart. Though it looks like it's going up, that's only because you don't see the steepness of the hill. This chart looks very good, but what if the steepness of the hill went up another 10 meters past the roof that you see right above my hand? This looks, you say, wow, look, it's going up so quickly. But what if, again, the mountain was so large and the church plateaued? Yes, great things have been done. We have reason for optimism. God is answering prayers. He is raising up missionaries. He is sending them out. My my personality lends toward optimism, which is odd because my theology lends toward pessimism since I'm a premillennialist. But I have found myself over and over when people ask me, how are you doing? Oh, I am so excited about the work of God here among the Tsongas. For the first time in 18 years, we've got 50, 60, 70, 80 adults, including anywhere from 10 to 20 men per week coming to hear us preach on the streets. I haven't seen that for 18 years. Doesn't look like the chart. If this were 2004 when I began ministry, ministry went slowly, slowly, with a few people being converted. Since 2020, I have seen so many more people at least interested in the gospel. And you that are here tonight are committed and interested and dedicated. And I count you as my joy and crown before the Lord. This, what a joy. God is answering prayer. The Psalms are coming true. Or step back and look and say, it was only a few. 60? 80? What is that among 800 Million. Well, it's 80 more than I had back in 2004. Let's close this section with some applications. We must conceive three applications. Number one, we must conceive the fulfillment of these prophecies with the clearest apprehension if our prayers are to have faith. Brothers, I have been praying often on Tuesday afternoons that God would save Tsongas, save people in this town and bring about a revival. And I have used these Psalms, the Psalms that I just listed on page 41. I've used these Psalms for my time of prayer, going through, as I did today, every one of those Psalms, all 27, phrase by phrase, asking God to do those things and to bring them to pass. And I found myself 
several psalms in, really believing that in Makassa and Madobe and Sundani, those things would happen. And in Giani and Tiani and Elam and Valdesia and Vuani, that God would hear us and answer these prayers. I want to encourage you. Put imagination into your prayer. Not foolish imagination, not making up your own stories. But actually taking what you've learned from the Psalms. That's why they're given to us. Take what you know from the Psalms and take what you know from real life. You know something about Harari. You know something about Zebediela. Take what you know about those places. And draw them up and meet them with David's words from the Psalms. And say, God, you have promised to do this. Will you not begin it? I look forward to the day when it happens. Begin. Begin. Even if we're just at the beginning of the ark. Let the ark go up and let me see it. Application number two. We must unite in our prayers. Requests for the churches to be planted. As well as for the return of the Lord. Friends, we cannot make the curve go up. We cannot bring about the revival as it is needed to be done. We cannot win the war. We cannot conquer them. There are too many. Evil is too great. Satan and his demons are too active. We need the power of God. We need God himself, Emmanuel, to come. Someone may say, why, does it, why is it important to you that Jesus come back physically and do this? Why can't he just come into our hearts and work mightily like he did with George Whitfield or John Wesley? Like he did with any of the great missionaries and evangelists throughout church history? And there's a twofold answer. Number one, because the Bible says it can't happen without him. And number two, because it is the perfect and most beautiful completion of our love for Jesus. We say to him, oh, come back. We are longing for you and pining for you. Only you can fix this mess. We are trying. We are laboring. Let us live till we are 90 or 100. We will serve you every day and every hour and every breath because the lamb is worthy But every day we serve, we're not even able to conquer our own sins. If someone says yes, but the Holy Spirit is even better than our Lord Jesus. Because he says in John chapter 16. It is better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come unto you. Yes, it was better for us that Christ go away. That we would learn how glorious and valuable his presence is. That we would learn how to trust in the Holy Spirit. And this is teaching us to trust. This, this constant laboring on in the midst of failure is teaching us to trust. Last night, Amy and I finished a book that I cannot fully recommend without a disclaimer. But it is a good book nonetheless, even with its weaknesses. It's the story of Demons and serpents attacking barnyard animals. And a rooster has to lead the barnyard animals against all the demons. 
Now, almost the last chapter, the rooster who knows that he cannot possibly beat this evil snake dragon. The rooster, as the leader of the animals, goes out to fight the snake. And he tries to fly, but his wings weren't built for flying. And even though he's not able to do it, he tries to fly. And the dragon comes through the air and hits him and knocks him down to the ground. And the rooster struggles and flaps his wings. The dragon hits him a second time. Just before he hits the ground, the rooster tries to flap his wings. And the way the story is told, you can tell the rooster knows I cannot win, but I will not stop. And it's very powerful just because of that. And the third time, the dragon comes down on him. And the way the author writes that story, the message is powerful. The rooster says, I will try until I'm dead, until every bone in my body is broken. And at the end of the story, by the way, the rooster says, I believe every bone in my body is now broken. (laughs) And I think that's what's happening to us right now. We are to go on, even though in the story, the rooster ultimately kills the dragon. In our story, we keep fighting on as the dragon breaks our bones, but we don't give up. We labor because we know this will happen. He will give us the strength to go on and not to go on in misery or in pain or in self-pity, not in whining, but in joy and happiness. Singing with confidence because it might be tonight that our Lord says, Ah, your faith will be rewarded. I will come back and crush the enemy and I will give you what you have seen in the eye of faith. I'll give you that victory on this earth and the earth will then be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But however it happens, we must unite in our prayers requests for churches to be planted as well as for the Lord to return. That's the second application. Third application, it's connected to the previous two. We must face hardship, pain, loneliness in the task of church planting. That's not in the notes and it's supposed to be there. In the task of missions, we must face hardship and difficulty and pain, loss. We must face losing our money to people who are undependable. We must face crime, the loss of our children, the loss of our bank accounts. We must face difficulties from other Christians who do not understand us or love us or accept us. We must face every kind of difficulty knowing this. Complete victory is coming. It is coming, and the lamb will receive the reward of his suffering. And every moment that I labor in some kind of difficulty, yet I still hold on to Christ, and I still look to him and say he is more glorious and more beautiful and more perfect than all other things put together. Our Lord Jesus is being honored as he only could be honored if we go on during pain. Are there any questions tonight? From this motive, the motive of hope for us to be missionaries and ministers.
people are suppressing the truth, then, yeah, I, it's not like I'm saying, I, I know that God, whatever God is doing is just, even judging those people who did not uh, hear the gospel, but the major is speaking. But part of me, I can say, oh, those poor people, they don't know anything, because you gave us an yeah. illustration, like, you went to Mozambique and you see people in a So church, poor. But when that church, they were not educated. Yeah, there's no Christ. Yeah, so what, what were they preaching to each other? So I feel like, but God is going to judge because they're suppressing the truth. But when today, when you say the knowledge of the is going to fill like the waters of the ocean, yes, uh, 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 my answer, my question was answered to say the graph is going up. Yeah. They are going to hear uh, the gospel. They are going to listen. The, the Bible says in Revelation 19 that he will destroy with the breath of his mouth all of his enemies. But it also says in Psalm 72 that all the kings, all the nations, all the families will bow before him. I don't know how to reconcile those two. All will be destroyed, but all will believe. So I think I reconcile it like this. When Jesus comes back, there will be a great judgment. A great destruction. He knows how to bring that. He knows how to end and kill and judge all those who deserve to be judged. And then he will begin his kingdom. And he will end those thousand years with the, with the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, does that mean that when he comes back, he will only kill millions, not billions? Does that mean he will kill billions but still leave 500 million to enter the new earth? I don't know how those things work out. Other eschatological views like to say things like, well, how do you answer this? And my answer is, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I have to have an answer for all of these things because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to us. I'm sorry, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he has revealed belong to us. He hasn't told us everything. And every eschatological view has certain things that cannot be answered. Simply, you simply cannot answer them. Every view has that because there's, God did not give us enough data that there would not be questions. The reason there are three or four or five or eight views, the reason there are multiple views is because we don't have all of the information. But we do have enough, and whatever we've been given, we need to hold on to that. Yes? How do we biblically warrant optimism uh, when we know that this age is going to get worse and worse? How do we say, I'm so motivated to be advised and be extremely optimistic when we know I'm fighting a losing battle that can only be won whenever Christ returns? That is an excellent point. I... The question is, how can we be optimistic when we know we're losing? We're going to lose. It's already promised. We're going to lose the game. Well, I think the answer is, we don't know what kind of loss, and we don't know the effects of our faithfulness. 
It is difficult to go on because the scriptures are only, tent- are only give hints. But I have often thought that our faithfulness in areas where people are, are less reached may allow those people to enter the millennium, hear the gospel, and be converted. I, 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 I believe, I'm coming to you just now, I, I believe that the way God works, he is so merciful that he will work out the most equitable, righteous, just system whereby his enemies will be destroyed and all the nations. Somehow, the, both of those are going to happen. Yes, sir. Yeah. I had a similar problem with what kind of this said. But when I read my Bible very well, and then I got some answers that comforted me. Because when we look at the book of Acts, where people were converted in many, then I could see that uh, they were converted in a specific area. But when we look at uh, like uh, the, the motivations that uh, Paul, Paul gave, as well as David, they gave this motivation before uh, the, the knowledge of God can reach maybe through God of the world. And then when we look now, we can we can see that uh, the graph is going up because three thousand, five thousand, they were converted in a specific area. Then how about now that the the knowledge of God has reached uh, hmm. uh, many, many countries, and uh, maybe the whole continent. And then it gives me hope as well that uh, people are being converted in numbers. If everyone can maybe uh, check how many people are being baptized every Sunday, the whole world, hmm. then we might find that maybe 3,000, 4,000 every Sunday. I, when I, I had a problem when I saw 5,000 converted, converted, then I was asking myself a question, why in our surrounding people hmm. converted? But when I read my Bible, and then especially the, the book of Psalm, hmm. it's very rich with that. It's giving us hope. Yeah. And then I, I saw that um, I think many people have been converted more than before because I usually sometimes check the, 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 the churches, especially reform churches, they, they are news. They will be telling you every Monday, they will be telling you, we thank God we baptize so many on Sunday. Like the Zambian churches, they will tell you we baptize 80. Wow. We baptize 30. In December, it was too much, they baptize. You know, when you look at those churches, they are baptizing every, hmm. every Praise the Lord. So when you, 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 you check, Listen, you take maybe few churches, reformed churches, they are baptizing when you compare the numbers, they are somehow 200 and something. Yeah. And then you don't know if, I mean, we, we don't even know around the world. Right. The, 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 the same reformed churches or two churches, how many did they baptize the, 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 the Sunday? 